we have a crisis in the world, tremendous crisis, and also crisis in our consciousness, in us. I see the urgency of change, radical revolution, mutation in the mind. I see it. It is necessary. There is complete quietness of the mind, and that which is silent has vast space. Only then that which is nameless comes into being. This is Urgency of Change, the Krishnamurti podcast. Is there an action that is not mechanistic, which is not based on reward and punishment? Hello and welcome to episode 196 of Urgency of Change. Each episode of the Krishnamurti podcast is compiled from carefully chosen extracts from the archives. The aim is to represent Krishnamurti's different approaches to many of the fundamental issues and questions we all face in our lives. This week's theme is Reward and Punishment. Upcoming themes are Seriousness, Hurt and Being and Becoming. This is a podcast from Krishnamurti Foundation Trust. Please visit the official YouTube channel for hundreds of advert-free, full-length video and audio recordings of Krishnamurti's talks. In addition, the Foundation's own channel features hundreds of specially selected clips. You can also find our regular Krishnamurti quotes and videos on Instagram, TikTok and Facebook at Krishnamurti Foundation Trust. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, which helps our visibility. This week's episode on reward and punishment has five sections. The first extract is from Krishnamurti's first talk, at Rajgat in 1965, titled, Do Reward and Punishment Help Us to Change? Now what makes you, each one of us change, you understand? That is the real question. You're, what makes you, who have been nationalistic, or a tremendously devout person with regard to some uh, guru, To me, the word guru is poison. There is something ugly in human beings to follow anybody. Now, how will you drop all this? How will you drop your Hinduism, your gurus, your nationalism? How will you stand alone, not follow what everybody says? What will make us, a human being, do this? That's the real issue, you understand, sir? What will make you divest all this at one blow, one breath, say, I'm out? Probably most of you haven't thought about all this at all. You have never said to yourself in your heart, why have I not stood up with tears in my eyes, killing some, not to kill another? Why? Why haven't you done it? Don't invent reasons. Why haven't you done it? And what will make you change? So that is the real issue. Either you say, I don't want to change, I'll accept the things as they are, 
That's good enough for me. There is disorder. There is misery. There is po poverty. There is starvation. There will be wars. There have been wars for the last 5,000 and odd years. We'll have some more wars. What does it matter? The world is a Maya anyhow. And what does it all matter? You either accept it, as most of you apparently do, because we human beings are, have an extraordinary capacity to adjust, do anything, to living in a small room for the sake of God, doubled up, having one meal, tortured minds. or to the appalling bestial conditions of war, not in Benares at the front, in Vietnam, whether they are American or Vietnamese. Human beings can adjust themselves to anything, filthy squalor of a street, open gutters, corrupt municipality, put up with anything. After all, adjustability is the difference between animals and human beings. Animals can't. Human beings can. So either we accept things as they are and go along miserably, torturing ourselves, unhappy, killing and being killed, seeking fulfilment and being frustrated, wanting to be leaders, restless, unhappy, which is what we are doing. If you accept that, there is nothing more to be said. You understand? You say, that's my life, that's where I have lived, my grandfather lived, my sons will live and the generations will come that will live that way. If you accept that, that's all right. Don't introduce another problem. If you don't accept it as, as a man of affection, feels strongly, who, who feels this whole monstrous thing, what is he to do? How is he to change? How is he to bring about a mutation within himself? And that mutation perhaps will not or will affect the society. But that is irrelevant. Society wants this disorder. Not wars, but greed, envy, competition, seeking for power, position. That's what society is. And if you see all that, and what will you, how shall we change? You understand my question, sirs? How will you change? <coughs> May I proceed? May I proceed to point out what brings about this enormous mutation in the human mind? May I go on with it? Wait, sir, I'll go on. But it's not verbal statement. It's not a thing you say, well, I agree or disagree. Because you see the disorder, and therefore you are passionate, not say, well, show me the way and if I like it, I'll follow it. <coughs> We're not talking of like and dislike. 
what is convenient, what is not convenient. Not in terms of communist, socialist or whatever you are, Hindu, Buddhist. We are talking non-verbally, factually, the necessity of tremendous human change. Because, you see, the electronic brains, automation and other technical things are going to bring about a certain change in the world. Man is going to have more leisure, perhaps not yet in this country. It's coming in Europe and it's there, all, beginning of it already in America. So, all these things, automation, computers, wars, nationalism, this splitting, this religious differences, all this, to face all this and to break through all this, there must be in each one of us as a human being, not as a collective group belonging to some organization, but as human beings, how will you change? And what, what is the thing, what is the <coughs> element, what is the energy, what is necessary to, to break down this tremendous destructive chaos in which one lives? What makes one change, sir, even a little bit? <coughs> Say, for instance, you smoke, if you do, what will make you drop it? Doctors threat that your lungs will be affected? And that's one of the ways of making you drop smoking, sit, smoking, through fear, right? Or punishment or reward. Those are the only things that will force us to change, punishment or reward. Heaven and hell. Next life, therefore behave this life. that is, the carrot and the whip, that is, punishment and reward. That's the only thing we know. If it gives me greater profit, greater satisfaction, greater energy, greater amusement, greater excitement, greater adventure, I will do it. Any change taking place through punishment and reward is that change. Please, sirs, you have to answer this question, not me. So don't go to sleep. Is there change? Radically change, not superficial. Superficially, superficial change, we have done that for centuries. That hasn't brought about any mutation in the human being, any revolution in the human be mind. We are asking the question much more fundamentally. If there is no punishment and reward, right, how will, what will make you change? And there is no punishment and reward. Who is going to punish you? Who is going to reward you? All those things are over. God is going to reward you for righteous behavior. He doesn't care two pins about you behave rightly or wrongly. 
No, you don't. Church no longer has any importance. You may go to the confession and so on in Europe as a Catholic, but all that's disappearing, all that's being thrown overboard. Except the most backward states, perhaps like in India, where you say, my God, little bit, not too much. You pretend still to be a little more uh, careful, that's all. But actually, there is nobody to punish and reward. On the contrary, society says, come along, we'll go together, be greedy, be envious, be competitive, fight, uh, quarrel, kill the Muslim and Muslim will kill you. You know, society loves that. And the politicians play up to that. So there is nobody who is going to reward you or punish you, right? Nobody. Neither your guru – you don't believe in the gurus anyhow, thank God – nor uh, your gods and goddesses, your, probably your wife and the husband can only punish you, that's all. If you're a family, your wife may say, sorry, I'm not going to sleep with you tonight, or I'm not going to do this or that. That's all. So, as there is no reward and no punishment, and there isn't any, actually when you investigate it, how will you bring about this change? You understand the problem that's getting more and more cornered for each one of us? If this is a problem to you, and it must be, if you are at all thoughtful, serious, if you have watched the world's events, seen what is taking place in this country, knowing that religions have no meaning anymore, probably never had it, seeing the futility of sacred books, seeing the absurdity of following any guru, however profitable, however pleasant, seeing that nobody can give you freedom, nobody can give you a mind that is healthy, strong and deeply silent. <coughs> and that no society, nobody is going to punish you or reward you. Seeing all this and realizing that human beings must change, radically, fundamentally, deep down. How will this change come about? The second extract is from the third talk in Madras, 1985, titled Pleasure, Reward and Punishment. All human beings are seeking pleasure, not only sexual pleasure, which is repetitive, imaginative pictures and so on and so on, but also the pleasure of power. whether that power be over your wife or your husband, or the power of a politician on the corner for whom you have voted. It's your pleasure to have that man, whether he's capable or incapable, doesn't matter.
put him in that place, it's your pleasure. And it's your pleasure to possess something. Possess money, a good house. A good house, you understand? A beautiful house. Well proportioned. If you're rich, with good garden, with lovely flowers, that's a great pleasure. And the pleasure of achievement, and the fear of failure. And pleasure is based on the principle of reward and punishment. Is that right? Shall we talk about that? Because that's what we all want. The ultimate pleasure is God. And therefore, God is both punishment and reward. And this God is invented by our thought. And we said yesterday, where there is fear, there is God, there are many gods, or one God. And if there is no fear at all, psychologically, inwardly, then there is no outside agency. But a door is open to eternity. Shall we talk about all that? Some theory? Or shall we talk about something? Sorrow? Or talk about something much closer, though we do have sorrow, each one of us, or have had sorrow, but we'll come to that presently, there's time. We ought to talk over together as two friends. This is not a lecture, this is not something to, be inf to, to inform you or to instruct you, but this is a dialogue between you and the speaker. And the speaker would like to raise a question whether we are only functioning with one or two senses, or whether we are functioning with all our senses. You understand my question? Probably being religious people, which I doubt, at least we think we are religious by going to a temple and all that business, and leading a shoddy, conflicting, brutal lives. Religions have said, suppress your senses, they are, because they are a distraction. Don't look at a woman or a man, and don't look at a beautiful sunset, or the stream that is singing by the side of the road. Don't listen to all that. And so we are, we are gradually cleaning our senses. When you hear the noise day after day, day after day, day after day, some noise from in the other house, you get used to it. You get dull to that noise. So gradually we are destroying our senses. 
right? And we are asking, when you destroy your senses, they touch, they feel the quality of a sense. The brain becomes dull too. And is it possible? I'm just putting this question to my friend sitting on the bank, on that bench, in the shadow of a tree. Can all your senses be awakened and function together as a whole? Have you ever tried it? Then you will find when all your senses are active, not sexual senses only, but all your senses, the seeing, the hearing, the touching, the emotion, the thought, all of your senses, because thought is a material process. When all your senses are at their highest excellence, the Self is locked. It's only when you are, when there is partial, dull operation of one or two senses, then the Self builds up. I say to my, we say to my friend, listen to it, find out the truth of it. And if you don't listen, don't bother. We talked about pleasure and all the implications of pleasure. Essentially based on reward and punishment. To avoid punishment, you understand, not physical punishment, but the sense of being losing, sense of not having. The having is a reward and the losing is the pain. So we live our daily life on this principle, reward and punishment. You reward a dog to obey you and gradually train him to obey you and if Jolliwell obeys you, come to heal. If you have a dog, have you a dog? No. So, our life is based on reward and punishment. And to, in that is involved fear, pain and pleasure. We live that way. I'll be good, that's the reward. And being not good is the pain punishment. So, if one understands the principle, reward and punishment, and whether one can be free of that principle, then life is entirely different. The third extract is from Krishnamurti's second talk in Bangalore, 1974, titled Reward, Punishment and the Mechanical Mind. Behaviour, relationship are the very basis of life, of existence. 
if you observe it in yourself very carefully. And behaviour, conduct is, and also relationship is based on reward and punishment, pain and pleasure. That's a fact. Now, people have tried, psychologists, others have tried, that have said that environment controls behaviour. Environment shapes behaviour. So change the environment, then be, be, human behaviour will also change. That has been a, a revolutionary theory of the communists, of the various types of materialists, of which you are. Don't fool yourself that you are not materialists. You are entirely materialistic people. Though you may pretend that you are very non-materialistic. So there have been various schools and philosophies. I'm using the word philosophy in its ordinary sense. Not the love of truth in daily life. That's what the real deep meaning of that word is. Various systems, revolutions, ideologies, scientists, psychologists have said, change the environment, for God's sake, change society, the structure of society. Then, because the human mind is so adaptable, it will then behave according to the social change. And it has been proved over and over again, it doesn't happen. This, the mind is so cunning, capable, it transforms the society. And they have tried all, all psychologists, religious people, to establish a, kind, a real human relationship between each other. Love God. We're all one in God. We all are brothers. You know, the whole gamut of all that. And yet they have not succeeded. Because we human beings are what we are. Brutal, cunning, capable of such deception, hypocrisy, greed, envy, anxious, all the rest of that, what we are. And that what we are has become mechanical. I'm a Hindu, I'm non-Hindu, I'm a Muslim, non-Muslim. You follow? I'm a communist, non We are mechanical. Our minds have become mechanical. Now the problem is this. If you are really interested in this question, whether behaviour and the responsibility of relationship can be freed from pleasure, pain, reward and punishment. That is the basis of a mechanical mind, because a mechanical mind is always pursuing pleasure, always seeking reward and afraid of punishment. If you watch yourself, your temples, your gods, your morality, your religious sanctions are based on this principle of reward and punishment. If you behave properly this life, you will be an angel next life, or little more intelligent next life. If you are good, then you'll have more money next life, a better palace. 
If you are bad, you live in a hovel or in hell. This is the principle on which all our conduct is based. Pleasure, pain, reward and punishment. And that has become our mechanical process. What gives me pleasure I pursue at any price. God being the highest form of what I think is pleasure. Or I worship the state because that gives me a position, that gives me pleasure, that gives me satisfaction and so on, so on, so on. Now the question is, All behavior, conduct, based on this principle must be mechanical. As you have observed in your life. Now, is there a behavior, a conduct, which is non-mechanistic, which means non, which has no friction? Right? Have I, <coughs> have I, <coughs> has the speaker made the question clear, the problem? Because if we don't understand the problem, I'll go into it again, differently. But if you understand it, we can proceed. Now, what is the action or behavior or conduct? which is non-mechanistic. <coughs> Having put that question to yourself, if you are a materialist in the sense that matter humanistic importance, then you will say there is nothing or there is something, an outside agency, if we could reach that outside agency, that will bring us to an action which is not mechanical. Therefore, you have invented the Atman, the super-consciousness the higher self, which, when it is released, will be non-mechanistic and therefore non-materialistic. I won't, I won't ask anyone. Now, again, when you say there is as an outside agency, that's also a factor of the known, because you have been told. Therefore, that has also be become mechanical. So, is there an action which is not mechanistic, which is not based on reward and punishment? Having put that question to yourself, as I am putting it for you, and the, how do you find out an answer? You understand? I've asked you, is there a behavior, an action, a conduct, a relationship in which there is no mechanistic movement at all. So how do you find out the answer? You must find out the answer, because on that answer your whole way of life will be transformed. 
because then you will not be dependent on reward or punishment. Therefore you will be acting totally afresh. Therefore the mind becomes then non-mechanistic, and therefore a regeneration takes place. The fourth extract is from the third talk at Brockwood Park in 1977, titled Through suffering we seek a reward. So please, we are journeying together into this question. So as we said, it's very important to learn how to observe, to learn. That is, to, not to memorize, because that, one, that becomes mechanical but to learn to observe, not to accumulate, the art of observation, which is to observe without any distortion. And there can be, there is distortion only when there is fear, when you say, I must get rid of sorrow, or when you seek comfort because you are suffering and you hope there is an end to suffering, and that hope gives you a certain sense of comfort. All these factors distort the inquiry into this great question. It requires a, a peculiar discipline of its own, so that your mind is capable of looking at itself. Well, as we talked, whether thought is aware of itself, is con- your consciousness aware of its own content. If it is aware of itself, then it can move greatly. But if you impose on consciousness the its content, saying these are its content and learn about its content, then that becomes mechanical, that doesn't lead anywhere. So we are inquiring into this question, what is sorrow and whether there is an end to sorrow. What is sorrow? Why does one suffer? Is it that one has lost something that one had, or there is suffering because you have been promised a reward and that reward has not been given. Because we are traditionally, we are educated through reward and punishment. And we are, say, asking, is there sorrow because you have no rewards, heavenly or earthly rewards? Is it, does one suffer because of self-pity? Because you have not everything that somebody else has. You are not so bright, clever, intelligent, nice-looking as the other. Therefore, through comparison, is there suffering? Please follow all this. Do you suffer because through comparison, measurement, you suffer? You suffer because through imitation you have not been able to achieve that which you have, which you are trying to imitate? Is there suffering because you are not trying to conform to a pattern and never reaching that pattern fully, completely? So, one asks very deeply, what is suffering and why does one suffer? 
And also one must be very careful in examination whether the word sorrow itself weighs down on man, the word itself We have praised sorrow, we have romanticised about sorrow, we have made sorrow into something that is essential in order to find reality. You must go through suffering to find something, to find love, pity, compassion. So. We seek through suffering a reward. And is the word suffering, sorrow, bring about the feeling of sorrow? Please examine all this as we are going along. Or, independent of the word and the stimulation of that word, the reaction of that word, is there sorrow by itself? This is not an intellectual exercise, but in examination you have to ask all these questions. If you are asking it intellectually, then you won't go very far. But if it is a matter of tremendous crisis in one's life, as it is, when there is sorrow, all your it is a challenge, and you have all your energy is brought into being. But we dissipate that energy. By running away, comfort, explanations, karma, this, that, ten different explanations. So, as this is a challenge, which is, what is sorrow? Is there an ending to sorrow? It is a challenge. And either you respond completely to it, and you can only do that, when you have no fear, when you are not caught up in the machinery of pleasure, when you are not escaping from it, seeking comfort, but responding to it as with all your energy, then that response is the expression of your totality of your energy. Right? Because that sorrow is a tremendous challenge. So, what do the cause, in the understanding of the cause of sorrow, does sorrow disappear? I may say to myself, <clears throat> I'm full of self-pity, and if I can end self-pity, there'll be no sorrow. So I work at getting rid of it. Because I see how silly it is, and I try to suppress it and get worry about it like a dog does over a bone. And Thereby, intellectually, you think I am free from sorrow. But the, the uncovering of sorrow, the cause of sorrow, is not the ending of sorrow, I hope. Because the searching of the cause of sorrow is a wastage of energy. Sorrow is there, demanding your tremendous attention. It's a challenge asking you to act.
The final extract in this episode is from Krishnamurti's fourth talk in Santa Monica, 1974, titled There is no reward in meditation. Now from there we can proceed. What is meditation? Not how to meditate. That is too childish. When you ask how, you are asking for a system. You are asking for a method. And when you practice a method, a system, as we have pointed out, your mind becomes dull, insensitive, following a routine. Because the how means a reward. And a mind that is seeking a reward in meditation, either through experience or whatever, a reward, better stop what it calls meditation, because meditation is not rewarding. There is no reward. Now, if that is all clear, then we can begin to find out what is meditation? Setting aside all the people have said about it. Not out of your vanity, not because you say, I know more and they don't, but you are learning for the first time, as it were, what is meditation. And therefore, not knowing, you, are begin, you begin to learn, which means there must be great humility. That's the first thing, great humility to find out. That means you have set aside all the things that man has said, or written, or insists upon, you have put it aside so as to find out through your exploration. First, to explore into this deeply into this question, mind must be free. Freedom implies space. Please just listen to it. Freedom implies space. Have you space in your mind? Or is your mind crowded with all kinds of things, with knowledge, chattering, desire, pursuit of pleasure, occupied endlessly about something or other. When a mind which is consciousness is occupied, there is no space, and you must have space. When you have no space, as outwardly, in cities, living so close together, in innumerable boxes, which are called flats, obviously, having no space, you become violent. Or, to escape from the lack of space, you want entertainment. Please see all this. And have you space? Space in the sense not created by thought. Thought can imagine, speculate about space. Space being
a movement in which there is no border, no frontier, no limit. And there is a border, there is a limit, there is a space created by the self, the me. Are you following all this? Does it mean anything to you, all this? Not much, all right. I'm afraid it's much too serious, you're not used to this kind of thinking. To this kind of observation, but nevertheless, I'll go on. You know, self-centred activity, in which most people indulge, it creates its own narrow little space. It creates the space of resistance. The resistance created by hurt, or by certain desires and so on. There is the cell, the space created by the self, the me. Therefore, it's very limited. We are talking of a space where the mind is not occupied with itself. And space implies also having no direction. Direction implies will. Direction implies achievement, go from here to there, and achieving that. And to achieve that, exercise of will. And freedom implies space, and a mind that has that functions that does not function in the field of will which means the total absence of the me with all its selfishness Can the mind live without time, which is movement, from here to there, time being measurement, time being thought? Can thought, which is measurement time, come to an end, so as to allow space? And this is part of meditation, because without space the mind cannot be completely silent. And silence is necessary, as it's only in total silence there can be a perception, there can be a listening. And in this silence, not manufactured by thought or by desire or as a means of escape from the turmoil, in that silence there is a totally different kind of perception. And so one must understand the nature of silence. 
that is meditation is not outside the field of daily life it is concerned with daily life your thoughts your behavior your desires and so on meditation implies freedom from all self-imposed or exposed controls which does not mean to do whatever you want to do in that understanding of freedom from control there is order that order is brought about comes naturally through the understanding of the disorder of our lives and from there meditation is the understanding of space which means the freedom from any movement of time because thought is time thought is matter therefore thought and as time comes to an end in meditation and in that freedom there is silence not the silence between two noises not the silence between the in the interval between two thoughts or between two experiences it is beyond all that because it's only in complete silence can the mind which in itself is silent can see something which is immeasurable timeless all that is meditation in which there is no experiencing at all because the experiencing implies the experiencer the one who sees or desires experience as we talked about it and I won't go into it again <coughs> there is freedom from experience and therefore <coughs> there is the mind is a light to itself it's only the mind that is <coughs> that is caught in darkness in illusion in pain that seeks something beyond itself when the when the mind itself is completely alight aware totally attentive <coughs> such a mind does not need or demand experience because there is no experience then only if you have gone that far and if you have been really serious putting aside all the petty little achievements and desires and appetites then only when the mind is completely still without any compulsion reward or punishment then only you will find out for yourself or rather the mind will come upon that which is sacred the un- the nameless and anybody who says i have experienced that beware of that person you cannot experience it it is there 
and it's there for you to see. 